really choose your battles. And that battle needs to be for indeed protecting liberal rights and, uh, and liberal democracy. Is a world without right-wing populism possible? As the COVID-19 pandemic swept across the world, it has put the nation-state at the center of people's daily lives. National lockdowns, vaccine rollout strategies, and the shutdown of international travel have introduced the national framework as a dominating force. How has the pandemic year influenced the politics of right-wing populists and nationalists? This episode will dive deep into the current state of protectionism, right-wing populism, and nationalism. To round out the discussion, our guests will also bring forward ideas on how to work towards tolerant and democratic societies. My name is Diego Rivas, and you are listening to Talking Progress, a podcast by Das Progressive Centrum. In this podcast, we will explore new ideas for social progress in Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces. Today, you are listening to our Progressive Governance series. We recorded this episode as part of the Progressive Governance Digital Summit, which took place from June 9th to June 11th, 2021. Johannes Hilia, a policy fellow at Das Progressive Centrum, chaired this session with two panelists, Catherine de Vries, Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, as well as Professor of Political Science at the Bocconi University, and Kaz Muda, Professor of International Affairs at the University of Georgia. And now, their conversation on how we can create a world without right-wing populism. Good evening from Berlin. My name is Johannes Hilje. Catherine, um, let's start with you. Um, if we go one year back from today and remember the sort of competing narratives on right-wing populism and the pandemic that were around last year. Some people said that this pandemic is a sort of nationalist moment because borders were shut down even within, within the Schengen area and people's orientation went towards the national state, I think we can say that. Um, so something that the far right actually could claim as their vision um, becoming reality. But others argued in such a fundamental crisis, people rather turn to the established parties and this could weaken the populist. Um, of course, there's no one-dimensional answer to that, but could you please give us an idea of how the reactions of right-wing populists um, to this pandemic uh, looked like and how these strategies were perceived by the different uh, public in publics in the respective countries? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Johan. It's also great to uh, to be here uh, uh, today and to and to talk about these important issues. So I think that what you saw in the media was prior to the pandemic. It was well, every election is going to be won with by a right wing populist. And then during the pandemic, it was, oh, now right-wing populism is on its decline for X number of years, right? So we go from one extreme to the other extreme. So I think the issue is often that it is much more nuanced. I think what you described are those two visions that they can apply to different cases 
um, you know, and they work in different circumstances, I can just kind of allude a little bit to some things that we saw. So initially, when the crisis hit, uh, I will focus now particularly on Europe, you saw kind of a rally around the flag. So you did see that government parties actually did well. Uh, and that was probably because in a time of crisis where people don't really know what to think, they want, you know, their ICU beds, they want to have their ventilators, they want kind of governance to be there. Then, of course, you saw differences in the responses. So certain governments were better at curbing uh, the pandemic than others. And you saw that reflected in their popularity. And then what you see now as we're moving in vaccinations, you know, also the backlash against vaccinations in some European countries. But now as we're moving out, you see actually a lot of the issues that were there coming up again. So I think the issue sometimes in how we talk about populism is that there is a demand for far right or populist right parties. And that demand can fluctuate with kind of current conditions. When there are a lot of boats entering Italy, for example, that kind of features the agenda. And then you see a spark off again. You see that now, for example, with the technocratic Draghi government, the far right party Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy being outside, and they are less able to control the agenda, but they also seem like the real opposition vis-a-vis a kind of unity government. So I think it really was that in the pandemic, a lot of the issues like immigration and so on were off the agenda for a little bit. That made it more difficult for populist parties to then, you know, capitalize on that. But as we're now moving out, you know, we're going back to kind of, you know, a lot of discussions on immigration already happening in Southern Europe. We're talking about economic recovery. We're talking about unemployment. The real kind of, you know, lifting of the support is going to happen now. So I think a lot of that demand is still there. And uh, therefore, I would see that, especially in countries that have been hard hit and where the economic shock will be uh, quite considerable uh, and, and there will be a, a delayed move into kind of normality, uh, you're going to see a lot of those things coming back. So I think the ideas really need to be that, you know, this is populism or the, the strength of far right parties. Uh, you know, we might want to talk about concepts, but I'll leave it here, uh, you know, really varies with kind of current conditions. And I think that just shows you that far-right parties have become part and partial of domestic debates and of domestic politics, and they can wane and grow depending on the opportunities that are there and that they're able to capitalize on. Thanks very much, Catherine. Um, Cass, you can certainly bring in also the U.S. perspective um, to this question. And of course, we all remember that actually in the U.S. there was an election in the midst of this uh, pandemic. Um, so let me put this question as follows. Um, do you think the pandemic and the handling of the pandemic by Donald Trump is rather an explanation for his defeat or rather an explanation for his relative success in this election because his, um, his, uh, his actual result was not that bad? Yeah, even though it sounds weird, I can also say both. And you have to keep in mind that in the US, 1-2% mean everything. Um, which actually in most European systems is not the case. Uh, and so, yes, probably it played a role in this defeat, but because the defeat was so narrow, like almost everything, including the weather, played a role. And what we did see in polls was that a specific um, demographic, older white people, which traditionally vote for Republican Party, were very skeptical about his approach because, of course, they were particularly affected by COVID. I mean, they died the most, and, and they vote on the basis of what's good for them. 
Um, so in that sense, yeah, that was that was bad. On the other hand, it attracted also a lot of people, including parts of the Hispanic community, um, which got very hard hit by um, the pandemic socioeconomically and wanted to reopen. Right, So I think that in that sense, the U.S. is a very, very different country than um, than most European countries, particularly in terms of so-called liberty. Um, I just wanted to respond uh, to to the question before. I think one of the it was one of the important parts was that it wasn't just that immigration was off the agenda, but actually the borders were closed. Right, and so the key the key policy of the far right, the key solution to everything is pretty much just closing the borders, right? Um, Now, the big problem, though, that we might have is that we kind of all agree that that helped. And what the far right has been doing over the last year is saying, look, they've always said we can't close the borders. It's disastrous, right? And now we all did it. And look, it could be done, and it did work. And I think this is a narrative that we are going to see with the far right that and the mainstream parties have to come up with an argument. Like, so why did it work? And like, why shouldn't we do it the next time? Because the simple argument of, well, we can't do that. Like that won't fly um, in the the coming months. Mm. Um, Let's stay for one moment at the crisis management um, by governments and I want to give you another question on that because I think it's pretty clear that when we discuss the influence of the far right and populist parties then it's not enough to look only at them and their electoral results we also need to look at the other parties and in particular um, to what extent they adopt uh, the agenda of the far right and of populist and you just uh, uh, talked about the closure of the border so my question is when you look at the crisis management of progressive and also conservative governments, did you see any kind of mainstreaming of the far right or the populist agenda in the reactions of governments uh, to this pandemic? No, I would say compared to particularly the the painful uh, response to the so-called refugee crisis of 2015-16, not really that much. Although governments close to borders, they didn't necessarily use very nativist arguments. Um, unlike here, for example, where uh, Trump went on about the Chinese flu and the Kong flu and all those kind of racist things. Um, it was a very matter of factual kind of managerial um, closing of the borders and the argument behind it. Um, <clears throat> I think overall, the discourse hasn't been particularly nativist. Um, it has been a bit, let's say, national priority oriented. I mean, particularly in the first wave many of the governments in the end looked for a national response rather than a European response, right? And and that, of course, again, played into, like, in the end, we are more Dutch than European or more French than European, um, which is, of course, the whole narrative of, of uh, nationalism of the far right. But I definitely don't didn't see a particularly nativist uh, ar- argumentation for European responses. Right. Our time is short, so I would like to move on already now on today's situation. And um, Catherine, if we look at uh, the situation now in many of the Western countries, um, the pandemic is more and more under control. That means that 
other issues and the actual health crisis will come up on the agenda. You just talked about the issues that were actually pushed from the agenda during the crisis. So now um, maybe some of them will come back to the agenda. Um, and some of them will certainly be still related to the pandemic, for instance, the economic and uh, social damages that um, it has created. Um, but the question is, what will the far right and what will populist forces campaign on next? If you, for example, um, look at the AfD in Germany, um, they believe that the post-COVID economic crisis could help them to mobilize um, the economic anxieties of people. Um, but actually, when you look at what competences the people see in this party, then it's actually not um, economic policies. So, Catherine, what do you think? What could be the big issues of this parties in the near future? And what are the issues that um, the other parties, the progressive and maybe also conservative ones, should be uh, particularly afraid of. So I think you saw already a little bit as, you know, when the US and the UK were getting ahead on vaccinations, that you saw a lot of populist right, far right parties advocating, lifting and being quicker and, and like anti-lockdown. You saw that also. I mean, it was in Italy. You saw it in the Netherlands. You saw it also in, in, in different countries, right? So they, they're losing a bit of that issue. So especially, for example, Forum for Democracy in the Netherlands won quite a lot of seats in the national elections on this kind of uh, platform of, you know, they've taken our freedom away kind of, kind of element, right? So, so, and, and, and this is too much. So they're losing that a little bit. I disagree a little bit with Kos on the borders because it, the border stuff works in the Netherlands, but it doesn't work so well in bigger countries because the internal regional borders were also closed. So in that way, actually, a lot of people didn't like that the, the borders was closed. So you, you, it depends a little bit on the country. So the question is a little bit how much can we kind of mobilize that, that border? On the specific question on that, on that economic issue, I mean, the evidence suggests that uh, a prolonged economic crisis is exactly something that you could exploit, right? Note that also other elements like rising prices. So usually these are more finance. These are not the kind of financial crises, but crises that come endogenous out of the economy and lead to uh, levels of, uh, of, for example, price increasement or, or, or big job loss. That would be the case. But interestingly, the empirical evidence is not 100% sure on that. Actually, the one thing that seems to be that the empirical evidence on the economic origins shows is that austerity is a big driving force in kind of the development of the far right. We've seen that work in the UK. We've seen work actually also on historically on Germany and reanalysis of the, of, of, of the rise of the Nazi party, showing that austerity was kind of key. And I think in that way, it's interesting thinking about this crisis vis-a-vis -vis 2010. You know, our, our, I'm Dutch by origin, so the Dutch government wanted to turn this into a 2010 crisis in Europe, right? This was about high indebtedness in the South and we're not going to be solidaric, but ultimately the next generation EU and the packages coming out of the EU have been more generous towards the South, especially. And that, I think, might, might change a little bit. But I do have to say, it really will be, you know, the, the proof will be in the pudding as we're lifting all this, you know, short uh, uh, employment support and support for companies. We don't really know what the exact fallout would, would be. So economic uncertainty and perhaps economic decline is something that, that basically these parties can galvanize on. But I think especially what you're seeing in countries that I know well in the south of Europe, so you see it in Spain, you see it in Italy, that already the influx of immigration seems to be already something that's mobilized both by, uh, by Brothers of Italy in Italy and also Vox in Spain, as there are uh, 
you know, and and that is of course also when we would think about that the that the that the vaccine rollout is very slow. You know, we we think the pandemic is kind of over, but you know, for most parts of the world, that's not the case. So there might be fluctuations, and then you get the element, and maybe Cos can talk about that as well about foreigners bringing diseases, and then you know, then you can think about it a different element. I mean, actually, to be fair, the only one who I heard saying that was actually Sebastian Kurz uh, in uh, in Austria. He's made some of these remarks, and uh, not necessarily. Uh, well, we, we can think about how we classify him uh, and his positions at the moment, but uh, you know. Well, that could be, of course, also a breeding ground. So I think economic uncertainty, depending, it's too early to tell what will be the case. That can definitely be a galvanizing ground. Uh, but austerity seems to have played a key role in the past, and that's less so now. But, you know, there will be a time where that comes back, especially of mainstream right, you know, talking about that already in the German context, in the perhaps in the Dutch context, and we'll see how that how that plays out. So I think both economically, but I think we should also not underestimate, you know, pressures of migration flows and that kind of elements and how they will play out in, uh, in, in, in the reconfiguration programmatically of, of some of these parties. Let's stay for one moment at this um, economic dimension. And I want to give this question um, to Cass. And it actually, um, it's a direct follow-up to what you just said, Cass. And you said that um, austerity was a driver for um, populist and uh, the far right in the past. And this is connected, I would say, to the financial crisis and also to the um, policies imposed um, by the European Union on some of the southern countries um, within the EU. Now we see a different response by the European Union to this crisis says, let, let's put it easy, there's not that much of austerity policy, but there's another way. There is um, the strategy of um, taking common debts and um, giving grants um, to one of the most affected countries um, by the pandemic. And this is actually something that is uh, very much welcomed in the southern countries. But there is, um, you could say, increasing protest by in the rather northern and rather rich countries by the respective populist parties in that countries. So, Kaz, um, my question to you is, could it be a sort of different geographical effect this time that the answer, the response of the European Union could um, rather create um, a sort of um, positive effect for the populist parties in the sort of uh, northern part of, of the European Union? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, that, that was the case, of course, already in uh, during the Great Recession, right? I mean, you saw mostly left populist response in the South initially, uh, right populist response in the North, and and then kind of after the austerity um, came came a bigger wave of right wing populism. So, I, first of all, I think it's important that we should make policies on the basis of whether or not populists might. Like use them. We we should make policies on the basis of what we think is best, and and we should do it from our own agenda, and that undermines actually the the far right. If we if we do it from this perspective of that we play into them and take away some of their points, they will they will come up with with other points, or they will just become more radical. I do believe that it, what is important and what I worry about is the first response was not austerity, right? Well, the first response in the North, as Catherine said, of course, in our country was austerity, um, but they couldn't push it through. Now, although it was not as generous um, as as uh, the right makes it out to be, there, there was this kind of European solidarity. 
um, you now also see uh, a discourse, particularly in the center-right and the right-wing parties, mainstream right-wing parties, of, uh, okay, we have spent and now we should be, like, now we should go back. I think that will be disastrous. Like, if you, by and large, then it looks as if you first gave away much money to the South, and now like, we'll take all the money from the North. Um, I think if we continue with this policy that is, A, state-oriented, Right? Because the state is now back as a, a, a problem solver rather than the, the, the reason of our problems, and which actually redistributes and invests in, in national economies, as, then European solidarity will be will be less problematic. Of course, right wing populists are going to try and like use it, but I don't think it will stick in the same way. But as said, what my big worry is is that very quickly now we're going to pretty much cut all of the socioeconomic support that we have had during the pandemic. And we're going to have some kind of softer austerity than in 2010. And that will be perfect for the far right to say, you see, there was money for others, right? Uh, when they wanted it, but when we want it, it's not there. Catherine, how would you answer this question um, for the context of the European Union. Um, you actually started this argument a little bit in your last answer um, when you talked about the um, austerity policies um, some years ago and now we have quite a different reaction of the European Union um, towards this crisis. How, what, what, what's your, your, your hunch? How could this play out in the different countries, in the different uh, regions of Europe in terms of, um, the, the reactions and maybe also, um, the benefits of, of populist parties, um, on this particular crisis reaction now of the European countries? Yeah, just to kind of first already follow up on something that, that I think Cos very rightly pointed out about the fact that, you know, populist parties might come up with something different. I mean, you saw it very clearly, right, here in Italy, where, you know, especially someone like Matteo Salvini of Lega, uh, of the League, has always been very kind of anti-EU and so on like that. And of course, he greeted the recovery fund and it was very, until he finds something else, right? So it's very strategic and very quick, these, uh, these positions might change. I think what you're seeing, especially in a country like, let me just kind of answer that question on the basis of Italy, where you see that the block of the right and of the far right, which, you know, Lega has a part that's very far right, a part that's more conservative right, I would think will quali uh, qualify it like that. And that's also have, has always been a struggle for, for Salvini to control, that he's kind of moving down, but that sentiment is still there and is now being served by uh, Meloni, by uh, the, the leader of, uh, of Brothers of Italy. And she has a much more consistent view on European integration as this needs to be re-nationalized, re-sovereignty. So in that way, that links to the, the issue of borders that we talked about before, that would be more in line with how she would see it. So it's fine to give Italy money, but, you know, she still is kind of criticizing the, 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 the attachments of reforms that are associated with that, right? So I, I have the feeling that it also, if you talk in Brussels circles, that the expectations are very high about this, probably too high, right? And then what you also see is that, of course, uh, uh, far-right parties feel that some of this is moving away an issue that they've been, been, been popular, that, that they've been kind of uh, uh, at, you know, antagonizing against. And then they try to find a different angle uh, of doing this. And this reclaiming of sovereignty in, in, in a kind of, and I see also a link to the kind of Brexit debate as the way Br Brexiteers were highlighting it. So 
Sovereignty is my country is in control of making laws very different than sovereignty means that I can address problems, which would be the, you know, the very famous quote of Mario Draghi that we might need to do also internationally. They very much have this first, you know, let's say Hobbesian even kind of sovereignty idea, right? The state Leviathan is totally in control. And that fits also the kind of the, the, the movement towards, you know, you know, investing more from the state and so on like that. So that could be more popular. I think that is an undercurrent that we're, that we're not seeing. And in, 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 in the EU, I think people are just viewing this very much, oh, this is, you know, we've given this, they're going to reform, they're going to grow, and that's it. I, I'm making a big platitude now, right? But, but you know, it's, it's very complex. And I think especially this defining the state as being a core and therefore having the sovereignty, so maybe not so much the borders. I think people do see the benefits of borders, but the idea that we could renationalize some parts of the EU in a way. And there could be, you know, if you get these parties in government in some parts of the South, that fits also very much of what we see with uh, far-right parties in, in power in Poland and Hungary. So I, I, I have the feeling that that is something that, that is going to be really important to watch in, uh, in, uh, in, in years to come. Kas, do you want to react directly to that? Because I think this was a kind of interesting um, claim made by Cashman that the sort of um, idea that it's better to re-nationalize some part, some kind of policies um, in within the European Union might be something that people might have realized with, uh, during this um, pandemic. And this could be something that the nationalist and the far right picks up and, and campaign on. Would you agree with that? And which areas, which policy areas could that be? Well, I think what would be useful is, is is if we would have a debate on that, and it would be a detailed debate, right? Because this is a general claim of the far right. But if I wonder if you push them on it and say, okay, so this policy, if we renationalize that, right? What are the consequences of that, right? Men, they will get stuck. I mean, I still remember that debate between Macron and Marine Le Pen in between the two rounds of the 2017 presidential election when she came with this really bizarre kind of offhand plan of, of having two currencies, right? Uh, one for the people, the reintroduced French franc, and one for, for big business, the euro. Um, and she got completely lost in, in the details. Because at this stage, everything is so intertangled that it's incredibly hard to renationalize one field without having like spillover into other fields, right? And, and so I think that this is a debate that we should actually have rather than run away from because it is on the agenda. And for many people, they feel like, yeah, the EU doesn't do this well. So why not bring it back? Now, in certain cases, you can bring it back. You might not want to, but you can. In others, you cannot do that without bringing back all kinds of other things as well, for which there's no support. But we have been running away from these types of debates. And, and that strengthens them, right? And I think that's, in, that's important. On the other hand, I also think that, um, particularly in the second wave, the EU has kind of showed that there is a benefit to working together like right, with regard to vaccines and everything. Unfortunately, this is done within the larger ideological narrative of national interest because the first wave was very much about we should take care of ourselves, right? And, and to get out of that narrative right, by just saying, well, the EU worked, 
right? That doesn't work that well. And and so as, as I've argued also in my in my written piece, right? You you cannot you cannot detach your policies from your overall narrative, right? The ideological narrative places and makes people evaluate your argument. And I think in that sense, we come out of this this pandemic with more focus on national, of both the state and national, but the national state rather than the European Union. Um, and and that is that is what parties have to think about. How do we explain that our national interests are are being taken care of in collaboration? Um, and and that is not just saying, well, look, the EU did well on this one vaccine thing, right? This is a broader story that you need to tell. And again, we have been walking away from this type of ideological conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's a great bridge uh, towards our last chapter that we have to enter already now. Um, I'd like to look at how progressive parties can prepare, prepare for the strategies of the far right tomorrow. Many in our audience might be particularly interested in the cases of Germany and France uh, because of the upcoming elections. Um, Catherine, let's start with Germany. In Germany, the Green Party stand the good chance uh, to be part of the next government. Already now, in the ongoing campaign, uh, we can see that the Green Uh, leader, the Green uh, candidate, Annalena Baerbock, is kind of the new Angela Merkel for the far right in terms of constructing an enemy as um, basically she's the, the top enemy now in, in, their, in their campaigns. And if the Greens do enter the government um, and if they want to implement their ecological agenda, they will need to have a strategy on how to avoid something like uh, a gilet jaune movement that we have seen um, in France. So from your perspectives, how should the Greens pre prepare for, for such a negative and anti-campaign against their transformative agenda? Yes, it's a great question. I can also not 100 percent, uh, you know, give the give the uh, give the answer to that. I would uh, I would be uh, trying to advise uh, parties on how to how to do that. But I, I I think what's important is exactly what you know. I couldn't agree more more with Gus in the sense that we've been, you know, depoliticizing certain debates just doesn't work because basically you're seen as complicit to all kinds of things, right? So when it comes to the EU or when it comes to other things. So I think clear position taking, which I have to say the Greens in Germany have throughout actually done quite well, especially I think I would have to say post Joschka Fischer again, because he started to maybe, you know, governmentize the party a little bit more again. Um, but she's nonetheless, of course, also a, rea you know, a realistic or real or how we would say, like a realistic uh, uh, Green. I, I think this kind of connection in the way that so I do, th you know, I've always made a difference between what indeed far right parties say politically and issue-wise, which I agree with with costs, when you press them very hard, they get usually into trouble on certain elements. The question is, do every, does everyone care about that? But nonetheless, some people will care about that versus their kind of very good style that they also provide, which is very, very, you know, very 
very much the case and the way they use also, especially, I mean, in this country, in, in Italy, you know, social media, and then they're very versed in, in doing campaigning. So I think on the issue side, you just have to be very clear and outline these things and outline the different types of debates. And then I think for a Green Party or for a progressive party, it has to be a clear element of like, what's the, you know, it's not about neoliberal market liberalization. That is, you know, the claiming of globalization by the FT as a certain kind of element is not what globalization only means to be. I mean, the fact that I can live in a different country, the fact that Klaus can live in a different country where he was born in and we can work there and we can share and we can marry different people from different countries. I mean, I see that as a benefit, right? And that's a benefit that we can talk about. Maybe not everybody thinks about that as a benefit, but just talk a little bit about that. Just, I was just struck again on the discussions about the Euro Cup, you know, the football, like, uh, you know, how, how would our teams look like without this level of free movement of people and me, people moving around and much more diverse? So I think this kind of commitment to, you know, what you want and what your what your vision is and then also just you know i would say allowing yourself to be the anti-side of that far-right mobilization can be beneficial i mean one one um you know one small caveat on that you saw that in the dutch election where some of the more you know very kind of pro-progressive parties did well also particularly uh, the leader of d66 she was she's a person who cares very much about human rights uh, you know, is married to a, a Palestinian, has been very explicit about these things. But then in the coalition negotiations, which are very complicated, she went very quickly back to mainstream politics. And I think that is where voters are like, oh, I smell your bluff now. This was nice in the campaign, but you're not really committed to this. And I think a lot of the time on the far right, there's less people who have the idea that they have a commitment problem. These guys have commitment problems. I mean, we see them switching around all the time, but they're very good at in their style and their rhetoric you know, and, and choosing, you know, to go into government or not, or with whom to go into government to, to display that. And I think, you know, to display less of a commitment problem. I understand that for mainstream parties, it's very difficult because you also want to govern the country. But I think you have to be very clear. This is my vision. This is the style, how I outline that. And these are only the conditions under which I actually am going to go into government under certain circumstances. And this always appeasing everything to every extent where at a certain point, not much is left anymore. I think that time, you know, in my, in my opinion is over. Cas, mm -hmm. let's stay for one more moment um, in, in Germany and it's a situation here just before the um, federal elections. Um, the agenda of the Green Party, but also of, of the Social Democrats, one could say, is um, a transformative agenda. It's about a social, ecological um, transformation, which goes directly at the heart of people's lifestyles and also cultural behaviors. And um, one of the claims that have been made for the far right is that they are quite strong on this cultural dimension of politics. So um, what do you think? How, is, how should, the, um, should the response of Greens look like if the far right in Germany, the AfD, for example, is campaigning on this cultural um, dimension on the let's say, on the claim that the Greens or other parties want to change the lifestyles of people? Actually, the Greens have a big advantage over social democratic parties here because the Greens profit from the social cultural dimension as the radical right do. And on top of that, they don't compete with the radical right for voters. I think like um, in Saxony Anhalt over the weekend, for example, I think if I, if I remember correctly, you saw that no one had gone from the AFD to the Greens. 
right? There was there was a zero, whereas even to the link, uh, there are links, right? So we know this, that there is virtually no overlap between the potential electorates of the Greens and of the radical right, unlike with the Social Democrats, which is much smaller than the narrative has, but there is one, right? So that gives massive uh, freedom and space for the Greens to do what they want to do. Um, I also think overall progressive parties should start to see losses to each other as less problematic. I understand that that from a professional point of view, right? It's your position, it's your job. But we're we're at a we're at a time in in, in our lives where uh, we're fighting for for liberal democracy, and and as long as this stays within the progressive bloc. It's a lot better than when it goes to a mainstream or radical right party, particularly given that the mainstream parties often already tender to the radical right. What is crucial, first and foremost, is that the German Greens do not do what the Austrian Greens do. It's it's absolutely despicable that the Greens go into a government and Bayard just say, okay, here, you have everything that has to do with immigration and integration. I'm just going to give up on that. You can make your map of Islam in your country, and I'm just going to push through some some small like tinkle on the on the sides of of your environmental policy. Um, I think stand on it, but also you now go into a into a, a, a campaign where you by and large know you're going to govern with the CDU, the CSU, right? So yes, make some big claims, but do not. Do not put yourself out there as the opposite of CDU, CSU, because that's going to disappoint everyone. Uh, Already think about the points that are important to you and on which you think that you can get CDU, CSU to work, which is actually things like agriculture and things like environment, right, which where they come much closer. Now, in terms of some of the other issues that might be more problematic, indicate that these are important to you. Right, but don't set yourself up for failure, which is quite often what we what parties do these days, is that they're going to act as if the world is going to end if that other party wins, even though they know they're going to govern with that party afterwards, right? And then you feel your plate. Um, I think the Greens are going to lose to the Social Democrats. That that's just how the world works, right? But you, you can manage that, and you can manage the expectations of the CDU, CSU, by saying, okay, these are important things. Here I won't compromise on, and that has to be essential, right? And here I want to make big strides. And in, again, I think to a certain extent, the Greens have an advantage over the Social Democrats by having more leeway um, because they have less overlap with, with the radical right to lose there. Catherine, let's look for one moment at France, um, because we also have a big election coming up there next year. Um, if you look at the polls, it looks a little bit like that we could see a repetition of the 2016 race, um, a close race between Macron and Le Pen. Um, from your perspective, um, do you think this is actually something Macron could hope for because then he could uh, hope to repeat his success from 2016 or do you think um, he should actually try 
to um, get uh, Le Pen down even before the second round and enter into a race in the second round with someone else? What would be the likely or what would be the outcome that is, um, let's say, beneficial for Macron here? So I, I really uh, uh, don't know what uh, Emmanuel Macron is doing in terms of elections uh, right now. He is uh, he will probably be up against Le Pen, and that's not because of his own strength necessarily. He's not very popular, actually, if you look in the polls. I mean, French presidents are not always that popular, but uh, it's because of the weakness of other mainstream parties, the Parti Socialiste, uh, the, the, the Républicain, who are not uh, doing well at all. There's been some talk about different people, but uh, they will not do that well. But what he's decided to do, I mean, if, very early in, uh, I can't remember if it was early in the spring, where uh, one of his ministers was in uh, in, uh, in debate with Marine Le Pen. I mean, you had uh, an idea of, well, actually, is who belongs to uh, Rassemblement National, who belongs to the far-right party? Extremely, uh, 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 yeah. I mean, I would call it Islamophobe. I mean, the, the, the remarks that uh, that I don't, I think, are fitting for a uh, for a party that's in power. When you want to integrate parts of society, you can understand that there have been uh, uh, terrorist attacks, but there have been terrorist attacks in many countries across the world, and I don't think that gives you know uh, a preface to do that. So. I fear with Macron that, uh, that, I mean, for me as a party strategist, he needs to make sure that the left feels comfortable enough to vote for him in the second round. And I do not see him doing that right now. Mm. Interesting. And um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. And I have one final question that I really have and need to ask to you both. Um, so the final question is... Um, If there would be one thing that you could uh, give as an advice to progressive actors um, on how they can limit the influence of right-wing populism in, and nationalism in this decade, so in the 2020s, uh, what would that be? Kestrin, maybe you want to start. Take a position and keep that position as much as you can and also make sure, indeed, as Kass said, to then not talk about the things that you want to compromise on, but really choose your battles and not... And not see, and that battle needs to be for indeed protecting liberal rights and uh, and liberal democracy. Great, thanks a lot, Case. What would be, Case? What would be your advice? Yeah, I, I agree very much on that. I mean, um, as I wrote in my piece, I think first of all we have to repoliticize politics. It has to be ideological again. Um, we have to recapture the agenda on the basis of our own ideology, we should focus on the key issues for us, which are the environment, the housing, public health, things like that. And and third, and I think this is more important than many progressive parties uh, uh, understand or accept, you have, to, you have to reimagine Europe because in the current European Union, a lot of progressive policies are not so straightforward, if not even possible, right? And so this is not saying that you need to be Eurosceptic. Right. They have to accept that just as your own national discourse is no longer like um, hegemonically left, to put it very, very mildly, right? the EU as it is today is not progressive and, and it is not furthering the progressive case. And the, the narrative around it like, is not helping. And a lot of the policies that, that I think are necessary require fundamental changes within the EU, which can be done and which are in line with the original ideas of the European Union. 
Thank you very much to both of you. And we could have discussed, um, of course, much longer, but uh, time is running out. And then I would like to say thank you once again. Goodbye for now. Good evening and good afternoon, wherever you are. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. That was the first episode of our Progressive Governance series. In our next episode, we will discuss research and policies that enable Progressive to win elections and build majorities after this crisis. If you want to learn more about the Progressive Governance Digital Summit or rewatch all of the 26 sessions, go to progressive-governance.eu/rewatch or check out the link in our show notes. This podcast was produced by Annika Hoffmann with music by Armin Mualem. My name is Diego Rivas. Thanks for listening. Catch you at the next episode of Talking Progress, the podcast that explores progressive ideas for Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces. <laughs>